As we look forward to that full enjoyment of God, I invite you to turn in your Bible to hear God's Word. Uh, two, two passages in Scripture, the first Old Testament, Psalm 133, the second a New Testament passage, 1 John chapter 2. We'll read Psalm 133 and then 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Now, as I said, my, I'm very excited to start a whole new series from the book of Acts on becoming a community of disciples. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, it would probably be good for us to return to a, uh, a sermon, return-ish, to a sermon that I preached a number of years ago when we were going through our, our church family values, and that is on uh, the family value of gospel-safe uh, fellowship. And so this morning we're going to explore a little bit about what it means to be God's family. Uh, in our passages, you're going to see the family terms of brothers and beloved. So very clearly those points are important to what God is making in our text. Uh, I also want to explore this because it's important for us to reflect from time to time on our church family values and to get ready for our this idea of us being a community of disciples. Uh, values define how we live in the world. And one of the things that happens in families is that they pass their values on to their newest members. members. And then within a family, these values are nurtured by how they live them out together. And in nurturing them and in working to pass them on, uh, families then grow their love for their, those values, which then helps them to keep nurturing and passing those values on from generation to generation. It creates this kind of self-feeding cycle. Uh, this morning, I want us to think about a value that our Heavenly Father wants to pass on to us, that he wants to nurture in us because he loves us and he wants us to love this value as members of his family so that it becomes a self-feeding cycle here at Grace. And that value is safe, gospel-centered fellowship. Safe, gospel-centered fellowship. And while I'm going to go on, uh, to explain, expand on that from Psalm 133 and 1 John 2. Let me just sort of give you just real quick a big picture overview of what I mean by this idea of safe, gospel-centered fellowship. Uh, so God makes our, our fellowship, our, our family life, safe in at least two ways. Uh, he does it first by making his family a safe place to be a sinner, uh, a place to be appropriately open and honest about our sins so that we can get help battling sin and even be uh, offered and given forgiveness for our sins, a safe place to be a sinner. That's one way that God makes his family to be a safe, gospel-centered family. Uh, on the other side, God makes our fellowship safe by calling out sin and rebuking sin and challenging sin and in so doing, protecting us from sins. Uh, and these two sides should be familiar to us because they're central to all healthy families. Uh, we want, all want our families to be safe places where sin is rebuked and challenged and called out so it doesn't grow and therefore make life hard or impossible. You can think of abuse as sort of the uh, end result of some of the worst forms of, of sin. And we also, though, want our families to be a place where we can be failures who get help and forgiveness and welcome even when we fail. Both sides are necessary to having a healthy, safe, vibrant family life. And now while there's different ways that people try to have this kind of family life in God's family, this is achieved 
with the gospel. Uh, Because in the gospel, our God exposes our sins. He judges them. He rebukes them. He calls us to repent of them. He challenges them. He transforms us out of them. But then also in the gospel, our God forgives our sins. He, He carries our sins. He draws us near. He doesn't drive us away. He He helps us put away our sins and mature us out of them as we respond to his word through repentance and faith. And all this is summed up in that wonderful gospel phrase, uh, Jesus died on the cross for us, right? He died on the cross to expose our sin, to forgive our sin, to transform our sin, and to build us together as sinners. And so it's through the gospel that our God nurtures and passes on this family value of safe gospel-centered fellowship. And as those who received the gospel and believed it, have been saved into his family by it. We want to learn from our Father in heaven what exactly this value looks like and how we can express it then in our own lives as brothers and sisters in Jesus' family so that together we can love it more and have it become a self-feeding cycle that grows in us and characterizes us more and more every week through time and generation to generation. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, specifically From Psalm 133, we're going to look at the blessing of unity and how that uh, creates gospel-centered fellowship. And then from 1 John 2, 7 through 11, we're going to look at how loving each other is also central to seeing Jesus together and so growing in this value uh, as one. And then I'll wrap up with a couple observations that I hope will help deepen our response to these texts even more. Uh, But first, let's read our text, Psalm 133. And then I'll flip open to 1 John 2, 7 through 11. So I'll first read Psalm 133. Uh, Let's hear God's word. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, flipping over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Let's continue to hear God's word. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, verse 7, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word which you have uh, inspired and preserved for us. Lord, we want it to uh, change our lives. We want it to be implanted in our hearts and bear fruits. We want to understand how to pursue this value of gospel safe fellowship and how to enjoy a unity and how to love and follow jesus but lord we know that these things are impossible unless your spirit uh, takes your word and blesses it to us and so lord we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear your word minds to understand your word hearts to believe your word 
Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the uh, uh, meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word this morning. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And Father, please also grant us that humility without which no one can understand your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so first, let's look at Psalm 133 and see the blessing of unity. So to get a clear idea of this blessing of unity, we need to notice that Psalm 133 is a song of ascent. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, when Israelites would take their yearly journey to Jerusalem to make the atonement sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins, they would sing these Song of Ascents along the way, which are Psalms 120 to Psalm 134. And what these songs do is they describe Israel's journey from being far away from God and under judgment because of their sins to being sinners who are near to God and near to each other because they've been forgiven. So these songs reenact and explain a spiritual journey where God's people, through confession and repentance in the gospel, get to have a fresh experience of God's restoring and renewing grace, uh, where he takes what was lost and broken by sin and brings it home and renews it. And for uh, our discussion, that matters because it's telling us that these psalms sung, are sung by sinners, uh, and, and not just sinners, forgiven sinners. Uh, so when the psalm goes on to celebrate unity and blessing, it's not celebrating it for the perfect, for those who have arrived, uh, but for us, uh, the family of God here on earth who are forgiven, but shocking to all of us, are still sinners. And both of these truths are important. Uh, because as those who are forgiven, we know that we have been brought from death to life and we've been adopted into God's family. But as sinners, we know that we are still in danger of working to destroy those relationships that God has blessed us with in the gospel. Uh, it's important for us to realize that in the Bible, sin is always relational. Sin is always aimed at breaking our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Uh, just think about what sin did to Adam and Eve in the garden with their relationship with God. They hid from him. And what it did to each other, they blamed each other and tried to cast each other aside. And there's work out from there to see that this is always the kind of thing that sin does. It seeks to break our relationship with God and with each other. Sin is a relational problem. Now, when you think of sin as a relational problem, as something which, which wants to break our fellowship with God and sever our marriages and erode our friendships and drift us apart from our families, then verse 1 of Psalm 133 contains a really powerful word. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Behold means to look, means to pay attention, means to notice something. Uh, and not just that. Behold means you are being called to see something and to respond to it. Like when your kids say to you, look, look, no, really look, <laughs> right? doesn't mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It means look and respond. God is saying here, make a choice based on what I'm showing you. Uh, so what does he want us to see and act upon here? He wants us to see that it's good and pleasant when brothers and sisters in the gospel live together, dwell together, do life together in unity. 
Uh, the word for pleasant is usually used in terms of, a, of living in a nice place, a place that's enjoyable, beautiful, peaceful. It's obviously been to South Dakota. Um, when, we, when we talk about uh, places to live, the word good means it's a place that not only sustains life, it's not just the bare minimum, but extends life in terms of time and bounty. It doesn't just give you a bare bones existence, but a flourishing life for you and your children and your children's children and on and on and on. So the idea is that living together in unity is something that creates this flourishing, life-extending, beautiful, peaceful, soul-restoring place to live. And not only that, the psalmist goes on to say in verse 2 that unified living is, and he says, like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. And I know, like, what does all of that mean? Well, precious oil means really good oil. Not only is it not rancid, but it smells and tastes of the highest quality. And uh, when you pour oil on someone's head in the Bible, that's a symbol of health. And beauty. This was a beauty product. And even given that Aaron is mentioned, and Aaron is sort of the archetypical high priest in the Old Testament, that oil also symbolizes the refreshing, strength-giving presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And then that image of really precious oil, I think, really pops when you think about beards as a mark of honor and strength in the ancient world and today. Um, really, really good oil running down a symbol of, of strength and honor means that you look especially strong and respectable and respected and delighted in. Oil running down the robes of Aaron, symbolized by his collar, emphasizes that the whole church receives these blessings because Aaron's robes are the priestly garments that symbolize the fellowship of Israel with each other and with Jesus. So this corporate beauty and health and honor and respect and strength and the presence of God, they're all especially seen in unity. But not just that. In verse 3, we're told that unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Okay, so this is a, this is a pretty powerful poetic imagery here. Hermon is another name for Mount Sinai. Why? I don't know. No one does. But it is. Hermon is another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is another name for Jerusalem, which is where the temple was, and is called the Mountain of God in the Old Testament. Uh, so without geeking out too much, the point of the image is God makes the waters of life flow from the mountain where God adopted his people and brought them in his family, Mount Hermon, Mount Sinai. And he flows to where God lives with his people day in and day out into eternity, Mount Zion, the final home of God's people. Unity is one of the ways that God pours or streams or flows the waters of life to his people from the beginning of their life with him, adoption, to the end of their life with him, which is eternal life in Mount Zion. So unity is how God brings 
exceptional health, beauty, respect, strength, his presence, and his own life to bear upon his family. Uh, now let me back up a second and remind you that when you see the word behold, you're not only being told to see something, but to do something. Really look, right? That's really how we should translate behold these days. It would just mean so much more, especially if people who have little kids. Really look. Um, you're not only being told to see something, but do something. So the point here is being made. Gospel unity is a choice. It's a choice. You can choose spiritual health and spiritual beauty and spiritual life and a deeper experience of God's presence or not. And if you return to the context of the Songs of Ascent, how God restores our relationship to him and to each other by uh, forgiving us through, the, through sacrifice and repentance and confession, you can see how you make the choice that Jesus is laying before us in the psalm. Will you choose to repent and confess your sins to God and to each other? Or will you choose to self-righteously justify your sins or hide them and thus break unity? Will you listen to calls to repentance and to be restored and reconciled? Will you be teachable? Or will you harden your heart and eat the fruit of death, as happened in the Garden of Eden? Will you choose to extend the forgiveness that you yourself have experienced to other sinners, which is so intrinsic and basic to being united together as the church of God when we are sinned against? Or will you be like the unmerciful servant and demand your pound of flesh? Uh, will you seek unity by calling your fellow saints to repentance and being a true peacemaker? Or will you close your eyes and let them uh, work toward relational ruin? See, all of those choices will determine whether we choose to live in a place of goodness and blessing or a place where life is sustained, but barely. Uh, where shame is common, or more common than honor, and where spiritual weakness and sickness and a feeling that God is far away is as common or even more common than a deep knowledge of God's presence among us and a feeling of spiritual strength and honor that comes with it. This is the choice that's being made before us. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Really look, which one will you choose? And that choice is ours because as Psalm 133 says at the end, for there the Lord has commanded a blessing, life forevermore. Where's there? There, there is the place where brothers dwell together in unity on purpose. And in that place is the blessing, life forevermore. And the psalmist here isn't saying that eternal life comes from this unity. What he is saying is that all the blessings of life that we've just expounded on are found in the unity of Jesus' family as they are experienced by us weekly and then they're passed on from generation to generation, this unified life which grows out not only into the world but in time as God's people are incorporated into that kind of family existence. Uh, now, if those blessings aren't enough, 
1 John 2, 7 through 11 has another blessing that uh, we need to be aware of this morning. So let's turn there and see it, 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 7 again to remind us of the text. This won't be too long here. Chapter, verse 7 of chapter 2, John says, I'll read this again. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Uh, already shining. Uh, and just so you know, uh, the commandment that he's talking about is mentioned explicitly a little later on, and that is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the commandment. That's Jesus' commandment, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we need to parse the way that John talks about this command a little bit. Notice that John says, this is an old commandment, which we had from the beginning, beginning which is the word that they heard. Now, given that John calls this commandment the word, we might think he's talking about Jesus and uh, his, uh, his uh, upper room uh, conversation with the disciples before going to the cross, but I don't think that's exactly right. Uh, Jesus is called the Word in the Bible, but he's never, to my knowledge, called the commandment. Uh, instead, I think John is talking about the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as we just saw, and you can go to all sorts of different places, God commands Israel to love their brothers. But John says the commandment is also new in an important way. And that newness is found in the fact that it's true which is John's way of saying experienced in him, that is in Jesus, and in you. So this commandment is new, not because it's new information, but because there is a new relationship experience, which Jesus is doing in the world. So how is this relationship experience new? Well, I think it's new because the kind of family that God has on earth after Jesus is new. Uh, no longer is it primarily defined as Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. And those two groups of sinners are united now into one family by the gospel and together are called beloved. Which is why John talks about the darkness passing away. In John's gospel, that darkness of sin is always something that stands in the way of reconciled relationships, of wholeness and unity and life-affirming, uh, life-giving spiritual life with, with Jesus. So that darkness is already passing away because Jesus is uniting Jew and Gentile, sinners, together in him as his family. So if that's the new relationship that reveals the darkness is passing away, what makes the commandment new? Well, in the Old Testament, brother was used for Jews. In the New Testament, brother is used for Jews and Gentiles together in the church. The family is new. There's in-laws now, of which all of us are the in-laws. <laughs> so the command, which is old, is experientially new because the old family has new members. And then from there, it's really interesting to ask, 
what does it mean that the true light then is already shining? I, I think when we read this, we usually just sort of think of Jesus in heaven. Uh, but I think what John means here is Jesus in the church, in us, in our congregation. After all, if the darkness is passing away, it means the brokenness of relationships is passing because of Jesus, then the true light already shining must mean that the visible presence of Jesus is in these new relationships which he has created through the gospel. And this is actually a very common theme in John's writings. Uh, Jesus is visible to the world by how his people live. Or in Psalm 133 terms, the unity of the church makes the presence of Jesus among us visible to us and to the world. Uh, but there's a flip side that's important, and I, and I think is really surprising, uh, because you'd think the flip side would be, if we don't love each other, then Jesus is not visible to the world, right? But that is not what John says, because, of course, Jesus has a more fundamental witness to the world and the church, which is the Bible. Instead, the flip side of this is a surprising word in verses 9 through 11, which I'm going to read again. He says, Whoever says he is the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Uh, so if you hate your brother, if you practice disunity, if you're working to prevent reconciliation and are withholding forgiveness, then you are still in the darkness. Does that mean that you're not a Christian? No, that is not what John is saying. Because as he goes on to say in verse 11, if you hate your brother, you're walking blindly in the dark and you don't know where you're going, which is John's way of saying you can't see Jesus clearly, and therefore you can't follow him the way that you'd want to. See, it's not necessarily that you don't know Jesus. It's not necessarily that you don't believe in Jesus. It's that you can't follow him as a disciple because you can't see him. Or to put it another way, you're not growing in the Christian life because you can't follow Jesus in the ways of unity you're therefore not growing. You aren't nurturing the same values as the rest of Jesus' family. So you said find yourself moving more and more to the margins of that family, to the edge of that family life, because you don't understand that family life. You don't know where you're going if you're not following Jesus as he moves us further and further into these family values of unity and forgiveness and love. And so the point of all this is when we are disunited, especially when we are disunited because we are hating each other, the tragedy is not only or even so much that the world can't see Jesus in us, though that's true. The tragedy is that we, the ones who are hating each other, can't see Jesus. We're missing him. Or we could put this positively, we see Jesus when we pursue gospel unity together in his name. We can see Jesus when we work at loving one another by his grace, which 
requires all the same kinds of things that we talked about at the very beginning and that you can see throughout John's letter, confession of sin, repentance, forgiveness, hospitality, right? Making people feel at home, welcome each other as failing sinners, carrying each other's burdens, and especially the joint worship of a triune God. Uh, All because in the gospel of Jesus, we have received all of these gifts from God through the saving work of Christ. And so when you have that unity, it creates a gospel-centered fellowship that allows us to see Jesus, allows us to follow Jesus, allows us to grow in Jesus and know him better and enjoy all the blessings of life which he has commanded to follow us as his people. Uh, So we've talked about how God uses unity to bless us with life and refreshment and uh, respect and spiritual health. We've, We've just seen how God uses unity to bless us with the ability to see Jesus more clearly in our daily life. Let me close by just adding three more observations by way of Uh, inference here, and this is short, but I think it's important. Um, The first is unity in our fellowship is not an add-on blessing to the main things of the Christian life. Uh, These texts show us united fellowship is a main thing of the Christian life. How we live together matters to Jesus. And it matters so much that if we live together poorly, Jesus says we are spiritually impoverished and maybe even blind. We don't want to be that kind of church. Uh, We want to value what we've said we value, what what we know our Heavenly Father values, which is safe gospel-centered fellowship. Second, another inference is that to have this kind of unity requires appropriate transparency and a vulner- vulnerability. And I mean appropriate because you can't and you should not share all of your sins and struggles with everyone. Like our three-year-olds in the congregation don't need to hear about your struggle with gluttony, right? That's just not something that they need. Not everyone needs to know everything. But you know what? Maybe your pastor needs to know. Maybe your elders need to know. Your spouse needs to know. Probably, and your mature Christian friends need in this church need to know because only as we appropriately are appropriately transparent with each other can we deeply experience the safety of being welcomed as sinners, being challenged in our sin, being loved in our failures, being encouraged in our struggles. It's only by being vulnerable and transparent with each other appropriately that we can get sort of this deep day-in, day-out experience, fresh experience of Christ's forgiveness as it comes from the lips of his people that reaffirms over and over again the love of Christ and his grace and his welcome to people like you and me. Uh, and, And I should also add, without that kind of vulnerability, we aren't really going to be unified, not in any sort of deep, real way. And if you want evidence of that, how many of us are unified? Uh, how, many, how many of us have friends that we would sort of say we experience deep unity when we keep everything on the surface level, right? Without trust, deep trust, there is no deep unity. And then third and finally, unity requires effort. And this is really just a reflection on God's command in John to love one another. Uh, 
I'll just keep saying this in the Bible. Love is always an action. Always. It does have a feeling component, but it's always an action that the feeling is, uh, is, is expressing. And even if the feeling is not there, it's always an action that we, we give. So we are not united simply if we are not actively fighting. Unity is not found in the fact, well, no one yelled at each other in church today. We're a real united place. People sat a good, you know, socially distanced 20 feet apart. We all left single file, quietly, very united congregation. That's not what that is. Like unity is found in loving each other actively from Sunday to Sunday. We are only united as we love in the sacrificial ways that Jesus defined love. Love one another as I have loved you, which is not a 20-foot socially distant safety net, but from heaven to earth, day in, day out, humble suffering. It's like that love. We're only united as we love one another as Jesus has loved us, as we love each other enough to actually pray for each other and to be involved in each other's lives enough so that we know how to pray for each other and how to bear each other's burdens and how to be there to spiritually, emotionally, and physically support each other and help each other. That is the love of unity. Unity is loving each other enough to have hard conversations about sinful behavior. Unity is loving each other enough to hear a rebuking word offered in the name of Jesus and to respond to it with confession and repentance and not, you know, anger and bitterness and doubling down. Unity is loving each other enough to forgive each other and work towards reconciling and repairing relationships that have been broken. Because that kind of unity, that kind of love, is how our God has loved us and has unified himself to us in the gospel of Jesus. And the good news is that as we pursue that unity and love through the gospel, we can be assured that we will see Jesus more clearly in our day-to-day life. We will look more and more like him as his people. And the true light of his presence in us as a church will shine more brightly before the world. And we will know that this church, we will experience this church to be a more and more uh, pleasant, delightful, peaceful, life-giving congregation. This is what God is offering to us. And it's the kind of thing he wants to build out into our community as a discipleship community. And so, beloved, let's say yes to this value in Jesus' name. And let's practice it. Let's join with our Heavenly Father in creating this self-feeding cycle of unity that goes from us to our children, to our new members, to our visitors, to the neighborhoods around us. Like, let's live and pass on this life this value of gospel-safe fellowship that we are receiving from our Father in heaven. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for our church family. Uh, Thank you for showing us what kind of culture you value in our family and for uh, teaching this culture to us through uh, your word and through the work of your spirit in our lives. Uh, Father, please help us to value true gospel unity. 
Please make us to be a, a safe place for sinners. Make us honest and gracious. Make us caring and forgiving. Help us to be appropriately vulnerable and transparent. Uh, build us up in the faith so that uh, through the unity of our love and fellowship, uh, we would grow in our ability to see and follow Jesus and so enjoy more and more all the blessings of life which you have given us through him. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.